We're going to be reading Psalms 99 and Psalms 100 out of the New English Translation. It'll be on the screens. The Lord reigns, the nations tremble. He sits enthroned above the winged angels, and the earth shakes. The Lord is elevated in Zion. He is exalted over the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is strong. He loves justice. You ensure that legal decisions are made fairly. You promote justice and equity in Jacob. Praise the Lord, our God. Worship before his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who prayed to him. They prayed to the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud, and they obeyed his regulations and the ordinances he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. They found you to be a forgiving God, but also one who punished their sinful deeds. Praise the Lord, our God. Worship on his holy hill, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Psalm 100. Shout out praises to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with joy. Enter his presence with joyful singing. Acknowledge the Lord is God. He made us, and we belong to him. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks, give him thanks. Praise his name, for the Lord is good. His loyal love endures, and he is faithful through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Whether you are meeting here in this room with us, or you are assembling elsewhere, it is good for us to be together. So this morning, there are a lot of things for us to think through, through talk through. Um, a lot of things announced. We've got a new curriculum going for the children. We have um, announced with the building. There's just a lot of things going on. But I think it's, it's good today that we're, we're starting to settle into to, uh, talking about this topic. I, I'm excited because we are, we are starting this new series, um, series on... Uh, liturgy and our practices of, of liturgy. And some of you may be asking, what is liturgy? Uh, liturgy, if we're going to look at it, I'm just going to do a quick introduction because obviously this is a major area of study. We're not going to exhaustively go through uh, this topic even over the course of the next few weeks. We're still not going to exhaustively go through it all, but we're going to have a better understanding. Uh, liturgy uh, if you want to think of it in a very general term, it's a set of customs or expected actions that are accomplished uh, in community, and often in a, in a public setting. Uh, in fact, in Greek, it does mean public work. 
And so I know some of us want to practice personal liturgy, but honestly, a lot of what liturgy really is and the definition of it happens in a gathering or in a public type of setting. So, and, and, and liturgy is not exclusive to Christianity. Uh, other religions, other philosophies have liturgical practices. Um, you know, but obviously we're going to be concerned with the liturgy that we are going to practice here. Um, so there's, there's other teaching. We could go into some of those other things, but uh, we're going to really concern ourselves with what we will be doing. In the church, the, the capital C church, there are many different kinds uh, of liturgy uh, that's practiced you know, all around the world. And um, you know, generally, people would take Christian liturgy and group it into this concept of a, of a high liturgy and then a sometimes thought of as non-liturgy. But I'm, I have a, uh, this, this conviction that, you know, if Christians are assembled, the practices that we have to worship, they really are all a form of liturgy. Or, or if someone is uncomfortable with that particular word because it carries baggage for them, you could call it an order of worship or a form of worship. But everyone who meets together to worship the Lord has some type of liturgical practice, whether they really acknowledge it or not. You know, most liturgy, I think we would recognize today, is not, uh, you know, if we put in the category of something, we'd say this is some type of liturgy or an order of worship. A lot of those things are actually not really prescribed specifically in Scripture, at least not in detail, perhaps in a general form, but not, not the, the, the unique detailed nature of it. Uh, Acts chapter 2, I think, is a really good place for us to, to gain a, a good general understanding of what we're talking about. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In this verse, you see here, uh, this is the early church. This is the first day that the church all really met together with the Holy Spirit. Um, they were talking about the practices that came out of that day. If you want to read with me, it says, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And there we see four really specific things. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Out of these four general categories of things flow out different types of liturgy. What they really are, they are practices that are done in public to help to facilitate these things being done. You say, well, how, you know, you're thinking through some of the things that we do, how does that really be? So where does, you know, breaking of bread, we could probably fit communion in there. What about Baptism. Well, actually probably fit that into fellowship. That's an initiation of fellowship, right? So you can start to think of some of the things that we do and see, like, these are all outpourings of that, of that particular practice. So these are the four things that they saw were really important. We can see those things come out of it. In regards to worship, there's obviously more things that the church does, service, ministry, other practices, but as far as that element of worship together, the liturgy, they're going to fall into generally these four type of categories. Liturgical practices of the church stem from these four, but honestly, there's a lot of freedom. We don't see anywhere in the scripture where it says, when you meet together, 
make sure you do these 12 things. Here's a list. We don't see it. Something that, that John highlighted a little bit before, we are, the church is, you know, it's something that we are. We are the church. In fact, the church means the assembly. When we are together, we are the church. We don't do special things to all of a sudden say, by doing these things, we're the church. We are the church that does these things. Does that make sense? I know it seems like it's a minute detail and a, are we splitting hairs here? But, but honestly, if we get this right, it'll help us to really focus in on what we're supposed to when we do gather to meet. Different cultures, regions, subgroups, denominations have all developed communal expressions of these practices in order to facilitate them being accomplished and being accomplished regularly. And they're all a part of the worship that we give to our God. So whether it's um, you know, a Baptist potluck or a Presbyterian confession or a, a Lutheran preaching schedule, teaching schedule, or it's drums and dancing in Africa. It's all done together to aid in our facilitation of worship in order for us to be able to worship our Lord together in this communal way to uplift the name of Jesus. And I think in all of these different practices, fill in the blank with, with any of the practices we've, we've talked about or things I've left out, there's a danger. There's a, the danger is, is that the practice, and this can happen if it becomes unchecked. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. Think on its meaning. We start to lose our focus. And instead, the actions become the end rather than a means or facilitation to allow us to accomplish what we're called to as we focus so much on the actions that the actions become an end to themselves. At that point, it can become empty ritual and vain repetition if we allow it to do that. And honestly, that's one of the reasons for this series. We want to make sure that when we gather together and we accomplish some of these liturgical practices that, that we are going to accomplish that they're done together in meaning, they're done in truth, and we want to make sure that they're facilitating those things and that we maintain a focus on our worship of the Lord rather than the event or the practice itself. So, we're going to address specifically in this series really only three or four topics that I mean, we don't have much time to, to spend much time more on that, but, but we're going to concentrate on what we do on a Sunday morning. There are other things that we would probably include in this list here that uh, we could talk about. Things that are on our annual calendar, for instance, where if they were gone, we would miss them because they're part of our, our rhythm of worship throughout the year as a community. And so this morning, we're going to focus on May try to, to maintain a focus on this, uh, this first element here, which is going to be the call to worship. It's honestly, on a Sunday morning, it's the first thing that really begins uh, our worship 
together. So let's take a look at uh, Psalm 99. So go ahead, and if you've, you've lost your spot, go ahead and get back there. Psalm 99. Now the reason we've, you know, we're going to go through these two psalms is because they carry within them really great elements to focus on for the concept of what a call to worship is. That actual call, this announcement, this invitation, please come to worship the Lord. It is a, it's an important thing. It helps us to understand and to focus what we're supposed to be focusing on. So we're going to walk through these verses here. Uh, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, the nations tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. The earth shakes. The Lord is elevated in Zion. He is, he is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Pause there just for a second. This might be surprising, but this first element in this, in this praise psalm, in this call to worship, is a general call to worship for all people. All people should be worshiping the Lord. In fact, when you are reading through uh, Psalms and you see that word hallelujah, that itself is an imperative to worship. It is a call to worship. It just means let us praise the Lord. That's what that means. So when you say hallelujah, it is a call to worship. In this Psalm, it begins with saying God's desire for worship is not exclusive to an individual, a subgroup, a particular church, God's desire is for worship from all people. And to be honest, when we are engaging in this type of call to worship to all people, we have a different word for it. We call it evangelism. We say, hey, all of you who are not worshiping the Lord, you should worship the Lord in the fitting response of worship from an unbeliever to someone who does not worship the Lord. To answer that call would be repentance, contrition, understanding and submission to the gospel and to Jesus Christ to then be able to engage in worship together. So that's that first call. That's actually right here in this psalm of praise. It's a call for all people to recognize the reign of the Lord. So if we continue on, verse four says the king is strong. He loves justice. You ensure that legal decisions will be made fairly. It's a minor point, but I want to highlight here. We shift the tone. We shift the tense. The king is strong. He loves justice. Talking about the Lord. Then it says, you ensure that legal decisions will be made fairly. Notice how it shifted. Maybe you didn't even notice it. All of a sudden, this, instead of a, a declaration about God, becomes a conversation with God. It turns to a proclamation of praise to an engaging of worship with the Lord. This, I think, becomes the essence of the call to worship. Subtly, it's the difference between praise and worship itself. Praise would be a declaration about God. We're giving him praises. We don't necessarily have to be engaging with him to give praises about God, do we? We don't have to. We can talk about God. But as soon as that turns to an engaging in relationship with the Lord, to where we then are addressing him in those praises, it starts to shift to where that becomes worship. And I know that seems subtle, but it's actually pretty important. 
In fact, I think there are a lot of people who show up on a Sunday morning who engage in what's being done, but that element is missing. There is a possibility that you can be praising God and saying, he does this thing, he does great things, and yet not engage in worship. Because somehow that community and connection with God himself, that unity that we find there with him, could be missing. And I think if we're really honest, I'd say that there are some times we all come to corporately worship, and we're not. We're doing the things, we're saying the things, but we are not engaged with him. Right? Am I the only one? <laughs> Feel lonely up here. I think there's some times where that's for this. So the call to worship is a call for us to engage with the Lord specifically, not just to say the things, to do the things, to look like from outside that we are called by his name, but to actually be those who engage with him. And that is the difference. If you were to go through, we did, I mean, we did this for a while, a couple years ago, go through the Sermon on the Mount. The encouragement that Jesus has is to go beyond the practice, to go beyond the accomplishing of the law, to greater righteousness, to actually engage with the heart of God, that it would change who we are and what we do, because we're in a relationship with him. And that is the subtle difference between just saying a praise and worship. Right? That's what we're called to do. Verse 5, praise the Lord our God. Worship before his footstool. He is holy. And then we get some examples. Moses and Aaron were among the priests. And Samuel was one to pray to him. They prayed to the Lord and he answered them. This is also an important element of worship is to recognize the accomplishments of God in the past. It's also a fitting way to worship. Lord, you have done these things back then and then that leads directly into, Lord, please do those things again or Lord, please accomplish your work. We're engaging with the Lord. It should lead seamlessly right into prayer. It should lead seamlessly into this worship type of element to where we are engaging with the Lord about what he's, at, what he's doing now. Or in the future. Verse 7, he spoke to them in the pillar of the cloud. He obeyed, I'm sorry, they obeyed his regulations and the ordinances he gave them. Oh Lord our God, you answered them. Again, see the shift? Now he's addressing the Lord again. Our Lord, oh Lord our God. Not just him individually, corporately. Lord our God, you answered them. They found you to be a forgiving God, but also one who punishes their sinful deeds. Praise the Lord our God. Worship on his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. Psalm 100. I had to learn this as a kid. I remember this. You had to, you know, back then, just when I was a kid, we used old King Jimmy. So it always feels weird reading it in some other version. If I trip up, that's why. But Psalm 100, I remember I had to, I had to memorize, I think it was like six or seven, I had to memorize this for a Thanksgiving play. But that psalm 
The Lord's faithful to bring that back up to my mind. It is, it's lodged in there. Again, in the voice of old King Jimmy, but it's there. It's something that is there. So, so going back to the psalm, this is such a great example of a general call to worship that we might even use on a Sunday morning. And we'll look at these elements here. Look, shout out praises to the Lord, all the earth. Again, that's appealing back to all people worship the Lord. Enter his presence with joyful singing. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we belong to him. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks. Praise his name, for the Lord is good. His loyal love endures. And he is faithful through all generations. Notice here, this is, I would say, one of the best examples of a call to worship we would use in a worship setting because it is a declaration from someone to the group, to all of us, to the assembly, to go and to do something. A call to worship should have an imperative. It should call us to do something. And so if you look in here, shout, worship, enter, acknowledge, and then enter again, give, praise. See, it's, it's driving us to practices. It's driving us to, as the assembly, to do something together, whether that's something verbally, something in our mind, in our heart, or something that we're going to actually go and do together. It's something that calls us to action. That is the call to worship. The call to worship is for us, as an assembly, to engage with the Lord in accomplishing the things he has called to, that we might be those who are called by his name and do his deeds. It's big time. So it's not just call to worship happens, you hear it in the lobby, it's time for me to refill my coffee, it's, uh, I gotta, it, that shouldn't be what it is. We kind of use it as a signal, like, oh, we're starting. Are we coming here? But it is a necessary part of our, of our worship. It should call us to worship. And I remember having conversations with, with the Depolas. They were so animate about this thing. They wanted us to engage together, to begin worship together. And I remember we'd have a bunch of people out there, and maybe the, maybe the sound wasn't on, maybe people didn't know. A lot of people are just out there doing things. First song's going, halfway through the first song, people start meandering in. I remember talking with Rick and Christine afterwards and just saying, people are missing out. Missing out on something. And you know what? It's, it's, complete, it's totally right. We are missing out. We're missing out on that call together to go and to engage with the Lord. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about generally what the call to worship is, what it's for, but, but what is it really calling us to do? I want to talk about worship just a little bit. Because hopefully what, what we can do is to, is to see how important Worship really is. I mean, for a lot of us, I think worship and like singing are kind of synonymous. They're not. Worship is much more than that. I'm not trying to say that singing together, the music, is not a fitting part of, part of our worship, but it's only one element. 
And so when we say, how was worship today? Sometimes they're just talking about the songs. Oh, it's good, it's kind of loud. Whatever, I don't know, whatever you want to say. <laughs> or, it, or you say, the worship was great, I got to talk with so-and-so, I got to pray with so-and-so, we got to listen to the word, learn some really great things. Whatever it is, right? You, you can see the difference between those two things. What, what is our worship? What is that? So a couple of things, and hopefully we'll, we'll drive us there. Worship, what, what is it? What is it for? Worship is attributing worth. In fact, if you go back to the old, old English, not, you know, King Jimmy's not actually old English. You've got to go farther back. But wor- worship comes from the combining of the words worth-ship. You're attributing worth. We do that in so many different ways, right? Our tension, our time, uh, our gifts, our sacrifices, our offerings, those elements, right? The fact is, is that we humans were made, created for worship. But what's so interesting, you know, if we were to go back to Genesis and look, we have a couple commands. A couple commands are supposed to fulfill. Multiply, right? Fill the earth. But have dominion. We were created to be the imagers of God, having dominion, but we are but servants we are submitted to the creator and that is implied in that creation account god says oh created being this is your task and so even though our task would be to multiply and have dominion over the earth we do that in submission to god built into that first call to action or call to worship is inherently worship going to do and to accomplish in this structure. It's a part of it. We were made for it. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 gives us this idea. Human beings are made for worship. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world His invisible attributes, talking about God, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what he has made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds, four-footed animals, reptiles. Human beings were made for worship. Today, people would say, I don't worship anything. But you go look at their life. What do they give their attention to, their time to, their resources toward? What do they engage in time in? That is their worship. It is what they do. We are geared for it. The enemy knows this. The enemy gives us lots of options. There's lots of different things to worship in an organized or unorganized way. Or disorganized. Unorganized, disorganized. Both. Both those things. Um, but what is worship? So, so, so biblical worship, what, what do we do? How, how can we keep from error in our, in our worship? as we gather together. I'm going to go through four different examples that I think help us to lead to our call 
to worship. Let's look at Isaiah 6. We're not going to spend a ton of time in any of these. They're to bring us to a point of understanding. But Isaiah chapter 6, uh, this is one of my favorite passages. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. That seems odd to start out that way. It's a way for dating the time, but also Isaiah is a priest. The king, in, the, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a king who tried to break the worship rules. He as a king came in and attempted to do what a priest should do and the Lord judged him for it. So in his death, it's, it always comes back to me to think, you know, in the year of his death where it's almost like, okay, I don't know, did they think of it as a reset? All right, so he's gone now, so we're resetting some of these. I don't know, but it mentions it. Here, in the year that King Uzziah's uh, or in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated and high, uh, or I'm sorry, on a high elevated throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. So here's Isaiah. He goes to the temple and he has a vision of the Lord enthroned. This was the, uh, the nation of Israel's concept of God's presence. To engage with God's presence, you would go to the temple. Isaiah gets a special vision of what that looks like. It's like reality peels back. You can see God's throne. He's highly lifted up. Right? He engages with him there. God calls him there. So this is the house of presence. Right? And I'll let you read through that this week if you'd like to to really gain that. But what it led to was a request by God, not so much a request, a command. Who will go, right? Isaiah's like, oh, I'm the only one here, so I will, I will go. He says, good, you're going to do this. It was a call for him to action. So this was the nation of Israel's understanding of the presence of God. So for them to worship, they would go there. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 1. Opens up a little bit more. Now, Ezekiel, uh, in case that is the part of the Bible that sticks for you in your Bible, Ezekiel is a prophet displaced. He was taken away into exile. So he is not in Israel. He is nowhere near the temple. In fact, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. You just keep repeating it till you turn there. Ezekiel chapter one. It says, in the 13th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was among the exiles at the Kebar River, the heavens opened up and I saw a heavenly vision. Very similar to Isaiah. But where is he? He's in Babylon. He's nowhere near Israel. He's nowhere near the throne. Now, if you're to watch the History Channel and Ancient Aliens, they have an idea about this passage, but that's not correct. Verse 4, I'm just going to kind of skip through this. There's a lot of detail. Ezekiel is really taken by this vision. He records a lot. It says, as I watched, I noticed a windstorm coming from the north, an enormous cloud with lightning flashing, such that bright light rimmed it and, and came from it like glowing amber from the middle of a fire. And in the fire uh, were what looked like four living beings. So he's having this vision here of um, it's going to be the, the throne of God. 
Uh, verse 10, it says, their, uh, their face has had the appearance. Each one had four faces, one like a man, a lion, uh, face like an ox, face like an eagle. Their wings were spread out. These are intimidating beings. Uh, each one of them had a wheel. Look at verse 15. It says, then I looked and I saw one wheel on the ground beside each of the four beings. So we got four wheels. The appearance of each wheel in their construction was that gleaming jasper. So these are very impressive. Verse 19, when the living beings moved, the wheels beside them moved. When the living beings rose up from the ground, the wheels rose up too. You might be asking, where are we going with this? What's happening? I'm lost. Don't worry. Here we go. Verse 22, over the heads of the living beings was something like a platform, glittering awesomely like ice, stretching out over their heads. Under the platform, their wings were stretched out each to the other. Each of the beings also had two wings to cover its body. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings. Verse 25, a voice from above the platform over their heads where they stood. Above the platform over their heads was something like sapphire. High above on the throne was a form that appeared to be a man. Ezekiel is obviously very impacted by this vision. So here's what it is. In simplicity, it's God's throne with wheels. There's four beings. If you kind of think back to maybe a period piece type of movie where you've got four people carrying this this thing and they're carrying and some important person is inside. It's sort of like that, except these angelic beings are the wheels. They control the wheels. What this is, this is the mobile throne of God. Ezekiel all of a sudden is clued in to this fact that we know. God is God everywhere. His throne is not limited. He's not stuck in the temple, which was a great thing to remember if you were in exile in Babylon. There he is, and God just gets on his mobile throne. Hey, we're, we're going to, he tells us the angels, hey, we're going to uh, we're gonna go over to the, the river there in Babylon. Step on it, right? And so there, there they are. And, so, and it basically, it's described, it takes a long time to describe the fact that wherever they moved, they picked the whole thing up and moved. It's just very, very taken with the whole form of the thing, but it's God's mobile throne. God is not chained to the temple. He's not stuck there, which was a very different concept from the other peoples where they thought that their gods had jurisdiction in a certain area. Not God. Not Yahweh. Not our God. He is king anywhere and everywhere he is. Hops on his mobile throne, goes where he, goes where he wants to. I had to practice saying mobile throne because I kept saying mobile phone. But I nailed it. So God is, yes, his presence in the temple. Is he everywhere else? Yes. Yes, he is. He is actually everywhere else. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This, uh, I just love this chapter. God engaging with the uh, Samaritan woman here. They're talking about the temple. And she says, hey, uh, you know, uh, your people say you have to go to the temple, we worship here, which is right. Jesus says, you don't understand. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, but time is coming, and now is here, when 
the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. Jesus essentially says, doesn't matter. Stop focusing on the place. Focus on the Lord. And he says here, spirit and truth. We must worship him in spirit and we must worship him in truth. We have to remember that when whatever liturgy we're engaging in, it must be grounded in both those things, both spirit and in truth. Do we lean towards one? Do we lean towards the other? What, is this chiefly a, an action grounded in, in we're just going to do things because spirit's leading us? Or are we so rigid in how these things take place? They're, they're, they're rooted in truth, but there's no room for the movement of the spirit. It says, no. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. First Corinthians chapter three. This is where we land. First Corinthians chapter three highlights an amazing truth that we need to sit and think through the implications of because it should affect all of our actions. First Corinthians chapter three, look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Whoa. Verse 17, if someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, which is what you are. Take all the concepts from the verses that we had before, put them all together. Where is the temple of God today? Where is the presence of God? We are God's temple. So this call of worship is for those of us who carry the presence of God to come together in an assembly that represents the presence of God. Okay? So just because you aren't here on a Sunday morning doesn't mean you can't worship. In fact, you carry the Holy Spirit with you wherever you go. It is just like Isaiah in the temple. Wherever we are, we bring with us the presence of God. So guess what? If the Lord wants someone who is not calling upon his name to call upon his name and call them into the presence of God, are they necessarily going to always, is God going to lead them always to a Sunday morning service? Does he have to? Is this the only place where God is? No, he might be leading them to you because you carry with you the presence of God. That also impacts how we live. Where am I taking the presence of God? Am I taking it where it should go? Am I engaging in actions that I should be? Because I carry with myself the temple of God. Enough to the point where if someone desecrates the temple of God, God takes that very seriously. So think on that. Where we go, we worship. So, do we, can we worship ourselves on our own? Yes, and we should. We should be engaging with the Lord. We should be worshiping that way. The call to worship it is a summoning into the greater presence of God because we bring with us the presence of God to enter into his house, in a sense, and to draw near to his heavenly and spiritual temple. When we are all together worshiping in a corporate assembled, assembled way, whether we're one or two, I'm sorry, two or three, slightly larger or all together like this, we are ushering ourselves, a group, into the presence of God to worship, to engage with the presence of God together. So what we practice 
daily we bring together into that greater assembly. And we're commanded to do so. We're supposed to assemble in some form or fashion. In fact, the word church means assembly. That's the point. You can't be the church by yourself. You can fulfill some of the role of, of our commands to be the follower of Jesus by yourself. But I think by the definition of the word and logic, you can't be the assembly by yourself, can you? But we're a part of this thing. We're supposed to be ushered into the presence of God to God's, we are God's covenant family brought together to revere him, adore him, praise him, bring fitting sacrifice, serve one another, use our spiritual gifts. That's the whole point of us coming together and to assemble ourselves. It is a unifying event that draws us together with that common goal. That's what that call is. That call is so important. Just a couple of verses. Philippians chapter 3, 14. It's going to be on the screen right there. Look at that. With this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. This is a personal call. Hebrews chapter 3. Watch this. Boom. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in the heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess together. We are, individually we are called, but together we are, a, we are a called assembly. And so our call to worship is a call for the assembly to come together into his presence. Hebrews chapter 10, and that's where we're going to end. Hebrews chapter 10 carries with it, I think, one of the, at least for me, this is, this is something that, that I, I read personally that, that really engages my heart with the Lord, but it is a call to a greater assembly here. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. A great example of a call to worship. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and the living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us uh, let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some in their habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so, because you see the day drawing near. And we could deconstruct that each line, but together when we hear it, we can see the greatness, the grandness of what is meant by that call to worship, that we individuals come together in an assembly in the presence of God to be led. So in, this, in the future for refuge, where are we gonna be beyond July? We don't know, but wherever we go, we will be the assembled saints of God, ready to do his will, ready 
to attribute worth to his name through our practices. And that call to worship is that initiation into that practice of assembly. And so we should be mindful of it and remember the meaning of it. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you have called us. We thank you that you, Lord, don't, you have not left us as orphans. You've sent your spirit, Lord, that you have unified us. Lord, we are thankful that when we come together, the presence of God that we experience individually, God, that we can come together and experience that in an assembled way, in a greater way, in a way that you've designed, that we would be one just as you prayed Jesus, to your Father, that we all would be one just as you and the Father are one. Lord, I pray that for refuge. I pray that we, when we come together, when we assemble, whether it's in twos and threes, smaller groups, together in this larger corporate worship, Lord, I pray that we would be those who are identified as the worshipers of the living God. Lord, that we would engage in our calling, Lord, to that heavenly calling, God. I pray that we would engage in that worship individually, that we'd put aside anything that's necessary, God, if there's something that is is, uh, leading the terrace apart, Lord, I pray that we would practice to put that aside before we come to this assembly that we together might be all together one, unified in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this element of our worship. Thank you for this liturgy, and Lord Jesus, I pray that we would live lives fitting to the gospel in which we've been called. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.